Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Jesus, Who Are You? by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, I thank you this morning that you are here and I ask that every eye would be open and every heart would be open to receive from you today. Show us more of who you are. Let us see the person of Christ in more of his glory, I ask today. Amen. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who was a staunch atheist, now an agnostic, which is the middle ground between atheism and confessing Christ, he said once that belief in God is the same as believing in unicorns and the tooth fairy. The only difference is, in my opinion, uh, never has a unicorn or a tooth fairy walked this earth. But my God has. We love reality TV shows, don't we? <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that. <laughs> but, you know, there's a, there's a wealth of uh, uh, reality TV shows, the, you know, like The Bachelor. Uh, and of all the Australians they could have picked, uh, they've picked this guy, okay? So obviously they want to challenge the ladies. But um, we have, even now, they're so obviously got nothing to put on TV to the point where let's make a TV show about people watching TV. How stupid is that? (laughs) But obviously it must get ratings because they still have it on. But what I love about the Bible and in Christ in particular is that the Bible is for me one great big reality show. You see, the Word of God for me, uh, I was surprised to find when I first read it that it's actually full of lies. It's actually full of sexual immorality. It is, from cover to cover, full of idol worship. It doesn't leave any of those things out. The greatest king in the Old Testament that Israel had ever seen committed adultery and sent her husband off to be killed. But what I love about the Bible is in all of humanity's mess, we see the story, the real story of people interacting with a tangible, real God here on earth. Read the story of Job. Job isn't this high, pious guy that just sits down and suffers. This guy goes on a roller coaster ride of emotions, and we get to go on that road with him. But it all comes to a head, I feel, with 12 of the most ramshackled guys you could pick to be your disciples. And they interact with the God man here on earth. I've said to other, I'd have chewed my right arm off to be here when Jesus walked the earth to experience him as the disciples did. But then I wonder, then I wonder, Jesus ended up asking his disciples a question, this question of who do you say that I am? And this is a question we all need to answer. I, uh, Rice Brooks writes a book called Man, Myth or Messiah, and I recommend you read this book. It's a fantastic book. But in this book, he highlights the fact that some people say that Jesus was nothing more than a man. Some people say that Jesus was a myth. And other people say that Jesus was a Messiah, the Messiah. And today I want to help you eliminate the first two and be left with only one conclusion. So let us, let us turn to Matthew chapter 16 and have a look at when Jesus questioned his disciples and We start at verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and it's interesting because after an intense uh, time of ministry, 
uh, Jesus takes his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi, which is an interesting place. It's a Gentile place. It's away from uh, all to do with Jews. And it's a place that is full of all the gods that, that are on offer. You see, Rome didn't worship one god. They worshipped many gods. And all of these gods and everything that the world had to offer was available in Caesarea Philippi. And it is against this backdrop that Jesus will question the heart of his disciples. And nothing has changed. We have a similar backdrop some 2,000 years later. You can walk outside of these doors and many people are still worshipping But they worship things like career now. And we worship things like relationships and power and money. All of these things that we're trying to cram it into the hole in our heart that was designed for God. People, People are designed to worship. You will worship. I want to help you to worship the one that you should be this morning. So he takes them to Caesarea Philippi and he asks them the first of two questions, which is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I want to to make one thing abundantly clear this morning as we go forward. When it comes to the person sitting next to you, when it comes to me, when it comes to the Prime Minister, when it comes to whoever it is, it does not matter how they answer this question. What matters is how you answer this question this morning. Firstly, who does everybody else say that I am? And secondly, who do you say that I am? But it's interesting the answers that he gets to this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And the interesting thing is, every one of those answers points to a supernatural ending. So obviously everybody who witnessed Christ saw something of the supernatural, something of the extraordinary in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, C.H. Spurgeon would say, sometimes Christ is up in the market, sometimes Christ is down in the market. He says, but let me tell you, he's not even on the market. Jesus doesn't trade in the opinions of men, he's after commitment. And when he questions his disciples, he's looking for commitment. He's looking to move them from opinion to commitment. And I'm hoping and my prayer this morning is that every one of us would move from opinions to commitment. Today's answers to that may look like something like man or myth. But let's, let's deal with those in a moment. It is with Jesus, the man that divides time. Isn't it interesting how we date our calendar according to Christ? I just think that's interesting. Two things I find interesting is, one, we date our calendar according to a man that never walked the earth, BC and AD. And they are actually trying to change that in educational circles now. Second one is, why is it that when people need somebody's name to swear, they only use one particular name, they don't use the name of Mickey Mouse? Rabbi Zacharias says in, why, in a sermon, Why Jesus? He says, uh, for me, he says, I see in the person of Jesus the man that sums up the total of my heart. You know, nobody likes that. That's what people don't like about Jesus. When you come face to face with his teachings, when you come face to face with a person and what he represents, it exposes our hearts. But Rabbi Zacharias goes on to say he also provides the remedy. 
So Christ comes to hold up a mirror for every person to look at and then says, all the deficiency you see in that mirror, I've got the answer for you. All the obstacles between you and God, I'm going to take them away for you now. I want to ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is? It's interesting, you know, when God asks questions, I've come to the conclusion he's not looking for information. You know, when Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden and Jesus comes down and he says, Adam, where are you? Who knows that God didn't lose Adam? Who knows God wasn't going, did anyone see where I put those humans? No, no, no. What God actually wanted to happen was for Adam to realise where he was. And what was Adam's answer? I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Why were you afraid, Adam? Why are you hiding, Adam? Nothing's changed since the time of Adam. Uh, People still tend to run away from God. You notice who moved? Notice who it was that was hiding? So Jesus is now asking a question of his disciples because he wants them to realise where they are. And this morning my prayer is that God would ask every one of us in this room the same question. Because when we see the picture of who we really are and where we really are, it's then that Christ can get into our hearts. Greatest heart surgeon in the universe. So who do we say Jesus is? I want to help you this morning with some evidence concerning who Christ is. C.S. Lewis said, uh, similar to Rice Brooks, he said, you know, I'm a reluctant convert. He said, I I tried to disprove Jesus and the weight of evidence compels me to accept the fact that he is who he says he is. And Jesus says the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, Sorry, C.S. Lewis says that the evidence is overwhelming and there is only three possible conclusions. He's a liar, a lunatic or he's Lord. By the time we finish, we will see that neither liars nor lunatics have risen from the dead. Only Lord's. So I want to talk to you this morning, and I will start with minimal facts. I am only going to scratch the surface of the evidence that we have for Jesus Christ. But if I'm going to do it, I'll do it with minimal facts. And these are facts that over 90% of scholarly doctorate-holding historians agree to. To be a minimal fact, sceptic of Christ or not, they agree that these are true facts, that the, that the evidence far outweighs anything else. It's, it's interesting that uh, both sceptics will believe this as well as Christians. All of these things I'm going to highlight now. These are found in Scripture and out of Scripture, and every one of them, I must note, not only points to a Jesus, it points to the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus of Nazareth, scripture. Let's start with the first one. Jesus is a person of history. To think anything less is nonsense. Absolute absurd nonsense. We have far more evidence that Jesus walked this earth and did everything that the Gospels tell us. We have far more evidence for that than we do that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. And none of those two facts are denied by anybody. The closest writings we have of anything concerning the life of Alexander the Great is 200 years after he died. And that is called a home run in historical history. Uh, when you're doing historical research, that's called a home run. That's called, that's undeniable evidence. 
We have eyewitness accounts 30 years after Christ's death that record everything about his life. Jesus Christ is an actual person that walked this earth. The question I want to ask you today is, what are you going to do with this man that walked the earth? Second one, very important one, Jesus was crucified. 600 years before Jesus ever was born in a manger, 600 years before, the prophet Isaiah said that our suffering servant would be hung on a tree. 500 years before we'd ever heard of crucifixion, there was a prophecy that said our Messiah would be hung on a tree. Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is a fact of history that is undeniable. This is attested in both sympathetic and non-sympathetic sources. Those sources are, the non-sympathetic ones, are Flavius Josephus. He writes the antiquity of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, a very wimpy one at that. When, when the Romans stormed the city, he went and hid. He didn't stand up for what he believed, he went and hid. But he wrote the antiquity of the Jews and he records this Christos, that was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Exactly the same words are found uh, at the hands of Tacitus, Rome's greatest historian, records that Jesus Christ, a dissenter, was crucified under the prefect Pontius Pilate. That is actually an amazing fact because Rome and histori- Rome's historians never recorded any facts that weren't concerning Rome and the glory of Rome. Jesus did not bring glory to Rome. Two others are Lucian, who was a Roman playwright. He records uh, the facts of Christ's crucifixion, and it is also recorded in the Jewish Talmud. And they don't accept Christ, but they record his crucifixion. Here's another minimal fact. This one will surprise most people in here. This is a minimal fact that over 90% of historians say is true. How they try to pass this off and look for back doors is up to them. But the fact of the matter is, three days later, the tomb was found empty. Undeniable fact of history. For 2,000 years, atheists and others alike have tried to cram a body inside this tomb to do away with Christianity, and they have failed to do so. There is no body in the tomb. I'm going to get to that more in a moment. But the fact of the matter was that the tomb was found empty, and to add to that, it was found empty by women. That is not a sexist remark, but it points to what historians call the embarrassment factor. And what I mean by that is, if you were going to make up this story of a risen Christ, you wouldn't use women as your first point of reference because their testimony had no credibility in the first century. Every gospel records that the tomb was found empty by women. I love how God does this. (laughs) I love how God just does the completely bizarre. Whatever you're thinking, he'll do the opposite half the time. History has repeatedly failed to put a body back in this tomb. I want to touch on a few more before we move on. Uh, Baptised by John in the Jordan, irrefutable fact of history. Nobody refutes the fact inside and outside of scripture. It is recorded that Jesus came to John to be baptised in the Jordan. The other interesting one is the conversion of Saul. I'm going to talk more on this as we go along and reference this more as we go along. But the conversion of both Saul and James, these are irrefutable, minimal facts that point to something supernatural and miraculous. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is a known sceptic of Christ. Imagine 
Imagine growing up with Jesus. <laughs> You've got to feel for James, don't you? You're walking around with a guy that, you know, Christ wouldn't have done anything wrong. He wouldn't have got spanked. And then on top of that, you're walking around with a guy that says, I'm the Messiah. Hang on a second, you're my brother. But he appears to James and he is converted. And of course, Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul. Rome records Paul in many instances. Tacitus records Paul and, ref- and refers to him as a nuisance. I think we need to be more of a nuisance. Paul was a nuisance to the Roman Empire because he held Roman citizenship. So from a minimal fact historical point of view, you can't pass Jesus off as merely a myth. And as we heard from Bono or Bono, well, you can't just get away with calling him another good guy. There are millions of people on the earth today that will attest to the fact that Jesus Christ is a person that has made a real difference in their lives. And I don't think a myth is able to do that. To me, there is only one option, and I want to highlight historical facts why I think there is only one option of what we are left with with the person of Christ. Jesus was born in a manger, just as we said he was. Jesus walked this earth, just as scripture records. Jesus said exactly what he says. Josephus records magical happenings at the hands of this Christos. There was, there was no refute that he performed the supernatural. I want to make a case that Jesus is not a man or a myth. He's not a lunatic or a liar. He is, in fact, Lord, and he is, in fact, Messiah. Interesting that Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, says, the definitive test is not to establish conclusively what is true. The key test lies in whether something can be proven false. I want to give you the example of two guys who are atheists who decided that they were going to disprove the resurrection because they were told if you can disprove Christ rising from the dead, everything we believe is futile. Those two men are Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel. And both of them now say the evidence conclusively compels me. And you can see the movie of Lee Strobel and his journey to saying that Jesus was Lord. Let's have a look at some of the minimal facts of the resurrection. These are undisputed facts of history. The first important one to remember is the fact that Jesus died. We're covering over some other old ground here. Uh, Some people have said that Jesus faked his death and that he swooned because you know what? We have an empty tomb here, so we have to find a back door. One of them is Jesus never really died on the cross. So therefore, you know, after three days of recuperation, he managed to move a two and a half ton stone, walk past a Roman guard undetected and disappear. That is one of the theories of why we have an empty tomb. But the fact is, Jesus died. It's not faked. He suffered just as the scriptures predicted he would and he suffered in our place that we may be set free another minimal fact of course we've covered this three days later there was an empty tomb you know it's interesting how uh, 
I think it's roughly about 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. Excuse me. 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, they preach Christ risen from the dead in Jerusalem. Now, if this wasn't for real, who wouldn't have gone, hey, hang on a second, the tomb's only just over here. In the very city where he was buried, they are preaching Christ risen from the dead. Thousands are coming to Christ. They're trying to extinguish the message. In fact, the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin will come and say, your teaching has filled all of Jerusalem. <laughs> what an amazing thing if they come and said, your teaching has filled all of Brisbane. <laughs> Just what we were hoping for. But they couldn't squash it. And nobody could refute the evidence. Another one is the rapid spread of Christianity. All historians say that this is remarkable. Christianity spread when it shouldn't have done. (laughs) Let's be honest. It starts with 120 people and it quickly multiplies and spreads under the power of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be stopped. No matter what the attempts, people cannot stop the, the, the spread of Christianity. And what I can't understand is we are left with 11 men. And if 11 men had made up a story, do you really think that 10 of them would be horrifically martyred for a lie? No, not only them, but every single person was willing to lay down, read the epistles. These guys suffered much. These guys were persecuted intensely by the Romans. The Romans wanted to extinguish the church. But the more they pressed against the church, the, the, the more rapid it spread. Until in the lifetime of Paul, we get to Colossians, where he says that the gospel has now reached all the known world, which is the known world. Not the globe, when he says earth, but he says the known world. The known world for them was all of Palestine and Asia Minor. That is a feat that only the Holy Spirit could achieve. Thousands upon thousands of people confessing that somebody has touched their life miraculously and tangibly. Hasn't changed. Post-mortem appearances. Uh, The post-mortem appearances of Christ uh, include the disciples who record seeing Jesus after his resurrection. We, We also know of Saul and James, which we touched on briefly, but Paul also references that Christ had appeared to him and to James, to the disciples, and to over 500 people at once. And Paul says, they're still alive, go and ask them. My paraphrase, 1 Corinthians 15. So if you don't believe me, that Christ appeared to over 500 people at once and the rebuttal for this is they must have hallucinated. Recently, I've mentioned this before, recently, uh, last year I watched a debate between Lawrence Krauss, who was an astrophysicist, and Dr. William Lane Craig, who was a professor of philosophy at Biola University. Professor Lane Craig makes a a wonderful case for the existence of God and Christ. One of his points is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Lawrence Krauss then goes and rebuts every single one of them. But when he gets to the resurrection of Christ, he says, I'm not even going to enter an answer for that. I don't have one. I'm going to leave that alone. They don't have one because every one they make up sounds stupider. Every time it just adds. That sounds more illogical. 
Of course, we've touched on the conversion of Saul and James, but we need to understand that uh, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, was an adamant opponent of Christ, turned one who would preach Christ. Something changed in Paul. Something changed in James. We don't hear a whole lot about James. We might do when we read his epistle at some point in time, but James was known as the bishop of Jerusalem. He oversaw many, many churches. And I can give you a brief history of James when they stormed the city in 70 AD. Uh, they went for the priest first and they grabbed hold of James and threw him off the top of the temple. And to their dismay, he got up and dusted himself off and walked down the street. <laughs> he would later suffer at the hands of a sword. But James, who doubted his brother, would be an adamant convert. I agree with Bono. That doesn't happen if somebody's a nutter. I can't accept. I find it hard to accept that thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people today will say there is a reality in the person of Jesus Christ. There is a transforming power in the person of Jesus Christ. I have touched on some of the rebuttal theories. I have touched on some of the facts that people use to try and get out of the resurrection of Christ. But the fact of the matter is the tomb was empty. Jesus appeared to people after the rapid spread of Christianity. And I love what Dr. Stephen Meyer says. He says, there is no other interpretation that fits the facts of history and the message of Scripture. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. There's no other interpretation that fits the facts of history and the message of Scripture. The writer to the Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and will reward those who diligently seek him. And I want to help you on that road this morning, on the road to accepting the fact. By faith, says Hebrews, we understand. And by looking at the facts of history, we are able to understand more of this wonderful God and Christ. But I now want to turn to my own personal testimony. I want to answer this question for you this morning. What is my answer as to who is Jesus? And I, I've often thought about what is the best way to put this, and I couldn't put it any better way than my favourite gospel, and that's the Gospel of John. If you've never read any of the Gospels, start with the Gospel of John. And in chapter 1, I want to read to you, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. <laughs> He's always existed. In Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image. Who was he talking to? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to start firstly with the phrase that Jesus is the word. And when John writes his gospel, he writes to both a Jewish and a Greek audience when he writes. And he says that Jesus is the word and the Greek translation of that is logos, which means the ultimate explanation. And what John is saying to the Jews is everything you're trying to find out and search for, uh, all the prophecies that you know and you can recite, everything you see in the scripture in the Old Testament, it's Jesus. You're trying to work it out. You don't have to work it out anymore. He is the ultimate explanation for everything you're looking for. But then John also, in the same breath, he writes to the Greeks 
And, and these Greek Stoic philosophers, they had nothing better to do than to think about stuff. And they were wondering and pondering, how is it there is so much order in this universe? How is it that there is so much order and regularity in the seasons? And how is it that we all came here? John writes to them and says, stop thinking. Go and get a real job now because Christ is the ultimate explanation for everything that you're trying to find out. My testimony is, for me, Jesus He just explains everything. I see in the person of Jesus Christ the ultimate explanation. Not only the ultimate explanation for what I find in my heart when I really look in the mirror, but also the ultimate explanation of what it is that I can possibly do about it. And that's to place my faith and trust in Him. But further to that, Jesus to me is the light. Jesus is not a light. He is the light. I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, I am convinced of Christianity as I am of the sun because by it I can see everything. Jesus for me allows me to see everything as it should be. You know how I can remember some of the times I've been walking, fishing in the, in the wilderness and it's pitch black dark because you're trying to get there before the before the daylight comes up. And then you can't see a thing, you can't make sense of hardly anything around you. But then when the sun comes up, you go, now everything makes sense. And can I tell you that the person of Jesus Christ, he lives inside of me and everything in this world now just makes sense. He illuminates everything for me. He makes sense of the condition of mankind. He makes sense of the order I see in the universe. He makes sense of everything. Jesus is the word, the ultimate explanation. Jesus is the light. And you know, the scriptures say that uh, if you come down to verse 9, it says the true light which enlightens everyone. This is what people don't like. People don't like the light shining on them. Get me away from this Jesus because he shines on areas in my life that I don't like. It says the true light was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him. Ah, this is sad. You know what? But the world did not know him. And it's sad because I know that if only people would take the time to get to know him, you would answer this question the same as I do. Verse 12 tells me, But, there's that word again, Terry. Greatest word in the Bible. It says, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but. And this morning I want you to know that there's a but. You don't have to go on any longer not knowing him. You don't have to go on any longer sitting in these seats year after year thinking, I wonder what it would like to experience him every day. I wonder what it would be like to recite the words of the psalmist that says, I thirst for you like a deer pants for water. I wonder what it would be like to experience God like that. You don't have to come here to experience God like that. We just celebrate the fact that we do when we come here. But to all those who did receive him and who believed in his name, can I please clarify those two words? They are like describing the same thing and it looks like placing your full trust and confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's not about saying fancy words. It's not about saying fancy prayers. It's about a committed life that moves from opinion to commitment in him. To all who believe in him. That's a verb. He gave the right to become the children of God. The right, the authority or the power to become children of God. When God was talking to David and making a covenant with David, he said, I will... I'm going to paraphrase it for you. It says, I'll look after your generations, after you, and, 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 and I will, to Solomon I will be a father, and to me he will be a son. There's two sides to this relationship. God is our father and we as his children. Believing in Christ looks like living a life of dependence. That's what children are, dependent on someone else. I want to ask everybody in this room this morning, as the worship team comes, please, if you could come and tinker this morning on the... We'll finish with a song in a moment, but I want to ask you a question. How do you answer the question of who Jesus is? Is Jesus just a man for you? Is Jesus perhaps just a myth? Because if he's neither of those two, you are left with one choice, and that is that he is the Messiah. And I want to tell you this morning that that's good news. I want to tell you this morning that you don't have to go any more of your life without experiencing God. This has huge implications. If Jesus truly is who he says he is, then he rightfully demands, and we're going to talk about this through the month of September more, but he rightfully demands, not a part of your life, not the part that you feel like giving to him, Not those areas in your heart that you feel like handing over. He demands all of us. It's interesting that over 2,000 years, sometimes we have a habit of introducing fine print into the invitation. Jesus never wrote the invitation with fine print. He never said, come follow me and everything will be rosy. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, come follow me, take up your cross. But we lose sight of the fact that he's God and there's no other response that we should give him apart from that. Friends, C.S. Lewis is right. Either Jesus was a liar, either he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. My conviction is that he is Lord. If you need prayer this morning, I want to open up the altar for anybody who would need prayer this morning. And I pray as we conclude. Jesus, you are to me my Messiah. Jesus, you are the God-man that walked this earth. And from the moment you entered into our vulnerability, it was at that moment that we can look to you to understand God. And it's at that moment that we can understand that we can be friends with God because you broke down all the walls. I pray for every person in this room that nobody would live another day on the other side of that wall. Help every person to know what it is to live in divine relationship with the living God. Jesus, I just want to thank you for everything that you've done for me. I want to thank you that you not only expose the fullness of my heart, but you absolutely offered the fullest of the remedies and redemption. 
I thank you for that this morning. In your wonderful name. There's no fine print in salvation. Jesus, Jesus outlined the fine print straight up and said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. We'll get to the pep talk later. Noah's life that he lived spoke louder than any of his words. And that clip that we watched this morning tells me that we have a huge challenge in front of us. We have a generation of people that are living in a grey area and they are unaware that there is a flood coming. We have a huge challenge to live a life that draws some lines. We should be standing up for what marriage really is. We should be standing up for the fact that life begins a lot earlier than people say it does. We should also be standing up for our elderly and vulnerable people and saying, if you can create life, then you can do something about it. Otherwise, leave them alone and look after them. God calls people home when he's ready. And we should be living a life that says, my Redeemer lives. I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that every single one of us here this morning would take up that challenge. Father, may we leave everything of this world behind and get aboard the ark, accept the greatest invitation of life with you. Father, I pray that you would allow every single one of us to behold you more, that we would fear you more, that we would respect you more, that we would reverence you more. Father, I pray that this would not be a challenge that, it's, that ends when we walk out the doors today, but may it continue onwards from here, I pray. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to get as many people on board the ark that you have prepared as is possible. Father, we surrender to you and we rely and are dependent upon you this morning. We thank you for your great grace that found every one of us. Help us to walk with you, Father. Help us to know you. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.